Premier Christian Newscast. Hello and welcome to Premier Christian Newscast. I'm Tim Wyatt and today we're going to be exploring the role of the Russian Orthodox Church in the war in Ukraine. Patriarch Kirill, the controversial head of the church, declared last month that Russian soldiers conscripted into battle in Ukraine who died would have their sins washed away automatically. Despite the mounting evidence of war crimes committed by Russia during their unprovoked invasion, and the fact that millions of Ukrainians themselves worship in churches affiliated to the Moscow Patriarchate, the church has remained in lockstep with the Kremlin throughout, defending the war as righteous and just, perhaps even holy. Why has it stuck so close to Putin and his vicious and dirty war? What is the complex relationship between Russian orthodoxy and Russian nationalism? And is there any hope for other world churches trying to engage with the Russian church in an effort to bring the fighting to an end? This week, we're joined by four experts to unpick this underreported but important story. Well, thanks very much, everyone, for joining us. Um, could we go around our panel quickly and have you all introduce yourselves briefly? Um, let's start with you, Aristotle. Sure, I'm Aristotle Papanikolaou. Um, I hold the Archbishop Demetrius uh, Chair in Orthodox Theology and Culture at Fordham University. I'm also the co-founding director of the Orthodox Christian Studies Center at Fordham University. Brilliant, thanks for having us. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, Bishop Nick, who are you? Um, I'm Nick Baines. I'm the uh, Anglican Bishop of Leeds uh, in England. Uh, Jonathan. Uh, my name is Jonathan Luxmore. I'm a freelance journalist specializing in uh, church-related or religious news from around Europe. I work particularly from Oxford and from Warsaw in Poland and have been covering the uh, Ukraine war fairly extensively. I have to say from a bit of a distance, but uh, yeah, that's, that's me. And last but not least, Katie. Um, yeah, I'm Katie Kalaitis, and I wear a number of hats, but I think I'm here because I'm the senior correspondent. I'm a senior correspondent at um, Religion Dispatches. Fantastic. Well, I'm really pleased to have such a great panel of lots of interesting voices uh, to discuss uh, the question of the Russian Orthodox Church and, and the war in Ukraine. Um, it's obviously been plenty of coverage about this, but for those who haven't been following this closely, um, could we start by just kind of explaining what is the Russian Orthodox's church's position on, on the war. Um, Aristotle, do you want to go on? Do you want to come in on that one? Um, yes, um, it's been fairly clear that they, um, primarily through the voice of Patriarch Kirill, but through other voices as well, uh, have, been, have been supportive of it. Um, they are um, supportive of it uh, in the form of a kind of rhetoric that sees ultimately that there are forces against Russia, out to get Russia, uh, out to divide um, kind of uh, Holy Rus and um, uh, uh, to divide um, a sense of a common uh, Russian identity, um, which uh, uh, is a kind of certain narrative that ultimately sees this uh, history between Russians and Ukrainians as a kind of a shared history and a kind of a shared identity. Um, 
that's of course very very complicated i mean there is a, a certain kind of truth to that um and i think also part of the narrative is this idea of a kind of liberal uh secular west uh out to get russia out to sort of get the orthodox world to divide it uh so given all that all those pieces come together uh in many of Kirill's speeches since the beginning of the war that have ultimately been uh, unequivocally supportive of the war and uh, there hasn't been really a sign at all of uh, any kind of uh, condemnation of the war or even an attempt to to um, promote a, a ceasefire or peaceful peaceful resolution so yes the short answer is <laughs> they have been unequivocally uh, supportive uh, of the war and what's what's people's reading on on the rationale behind that? I mean, you covered some of the reasons, Aristotle, but I'm interested in some other people's thoughts on on why, in particular, Kirill has been in kind of lockstep with Putin on this issue. Um, I yeah. Do you want me to respond to that? Uh, Anyone? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I I think it's a it's a again it's a complicated history to some extent. I mean, I think since the 1990s with the fall of communism, the Russian Orthodox Church. It wasn't necessarily um, a given that um, to be Russian again would somehow be identified with orthodoxy. Um, in fact, the, the communists did a very good job of severing that identity between to be Russian and to be orthodox or to be religious. So after the fall, it really was, it wasn't very clear uh, what was gonna happen within Russia, especially in relationship to its history. Uh, obviously part of that history is uh, the Russian Orthodox Church or Russian Orthodoxy or Orthodoxy. I mean, in many ways people say that Orthodoxy itself constituted what we now know today as Russia, um, but but slowly but surely they 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 I mean the Russian Orthodox Church succeeded. They succeeded in uh, emerging as a very powerful cultural and political influence, and it really didn't kind of it didn't really climax uh, until about two thousand and eleven, when Putin in his presidential speech started really using some of the language and symbols of Russian Orthodox history. And it did so as a way of carving out a kind of new East-West divide that was ultimately based on cultural and traditional values. And so, but, you know, so to some extent, the Russian Orthodox Church succeeded in, in, in again, establishing Russian Orthodoxy as something uh, integral to Russian identity, as becoming a powerful cultural and political influence. But to some extent, they sold their soul to the devil because they backed themselves into a corner in such a way that um, they, they, they really can't, they became ultimately a department of the foreign ministry mm -hmm. and they were used for, they're used, they being used for soft religious power. And now that the war broke out, there's no, there's not even a, an ounce of really a independence where they can even express an independent voice. Um, and so, you know, again, they, 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 their ambition was to kind of reestablish themselves and, and orthodoxy within the Russian context, they did so, but again, in such a way that it's completely being manipulated um, as a way of, um, to some extent, uh, um, uh, both in ideology supporting the war, but of course in, 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 in rhetoric as well. In other words, through Kirill's person, uh, there's a certain kind of support of the war. I mean, not a certain, there's an unequivocal support of the war. Nick, is that, you saw you nodding there. Do, do you share that analysis? Do you think that's a fair summary of what's going on there? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think every time Putin leaves the Kremlin, he passes the statue of Vladimir the Great. And there are sort of resonances here with the attempt to 
recreate not, not all the stuff about recreating the old Soviet Union. I don't think that was ever in play. It's about recreating the Holy Rus. And I think one of the bizarre things about what's been done um, with the full backing of um, Kirill and the Orthodox Church is that the rationale behind the invasion at the beginning was that we are all brothers, you know, within the the one Holy Rus. I'm not sure that term was used, but um, and then suddenly you're murdering, torturing, and blowing up your brothers. It doesn't work. That narrative has now been dropped. It seems to me, um, as the uh, both the church and the state have had to try and align the rhetoric with the reality on the ground and so the the rhetoric keeps changing but it's that attempt to re-establish the um the holy rus and um i think aristotle's absolutely right the a main driver in much of the rhetoric by kirill is the stopping the enemy of the liberal immoral west bringing their you know liberal immoral practices uh, in, they, they really believe they're defending Christianity. Um, but anyway, I, th I think that's, I agree with Aristotle's analysis. Katie, but, I know you've written a bit about this kind of history of the Holy Rus and the kind of the origins of orthodoxy actually in Kiev of all places. Do you want to explain a little bit about, about some of that backstory people might not be familiar with? So, I mean, well, I, I think, too, I'd like, I kind of want to jump in here about where they sort of got that rhetoric from, because I actually don't think it's coming necessarily entirely from Orthodox history. I think a lot of it's largely coming from the American evangelical right. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the Rus, the Slavic people, were originally converted to Christianity um, the, in Kiev, right, in, in Kiev, in, the, in the Ukraine, what is now the Ukrainian capital. And that was the capital of, of the Rus, of the Slavs, um, really until the early modern period. And then as we see the political capital sort of shifting towards Moscow, um, that ultimately then shifts the religious capital. Um, and that, hap I mean, that happens, the establishment of the Metropolitan and then later Patriarchate of Moscow happens in the context also of the Ottoman invasion of the Byzantine Empire, the fall of the Byzantine Empire, and the sort of marginalization of, of Constantinople as a center of Orthodox power. So um, very quickly, sort of the, the um, Russians, the new Russian state sort of assumes this mantle of the Third Rome. Um, but while some of that, I think some of that rhetoric comes into play, this sort of how to be, how to be a state act, how, for how religion can be a state actor is something they really learn, I think, from American evangelical Christians in the 1990s who pour into Russia um, following the fall of communism to ostensibly convert the Russians, even though um, Cyril and Methodius took care of that in Kiev um, several thousand, you know, um, long before, long before um, Jerry Falwell got there. Um, and that the rhetoric about the decadent secular West, I think, is actually coming. The call is coming from inside the house. That is coming from the American evangelical right, I think, at some level. That's interesting. Uh, Jonathan, you, you've been kind of reporting from Eastern Europe and for, for a while. Could you give us a sense of how the, the Russian kind of full-throated backing for the war has been received 
in that part of the world, particularly by church groups, by other Orthodox churches in particular? Yeah, just a, a couple of quick comments. I, I haven't picked up anywhere from any Russian Orthodox sources any even awareness of the American evangelical right. So, I, I mean, there may be some sort of uh, kind of coincidence of interest or sort of some similarity of rhetoric, but I'd, 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 I'd be very doubtful that the Russian Orthodox are sort of learning something from American evangelicals. Not that I'm aware of, I may be wrong about that. Uh, yes, I was going to say that contrary to what Bishop Nick said, I, I'm not sure that there has been a sort of development in the rhetoric. I think there's been an extraordinary continuity in the rhetoric since the war started. And it's important to, I think, for Western Christians to recognize that this is a very, very different kind of churchmanship than we expect in the Western churches, where we expect the churches to play a prophetic role, meaning to speak truth to power and all the rest of it. The, the, the Russian Orthodox do, do not do that. And they've said very clearly, over several decades, they are never going to criticize the secular power. It's not their job to do that. So this explains this sort of what to us is absolutely unconscionable in what Kirill is doing week after week. And he is the, 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 the fundamental authority in the church, I may shall work, which word which is quoted weekly, sometimes several times a week on the, the Moscow Patriarchate website. So I think there's been no change in that. But I think as far as it's received in, in Eastern Europe, is concerned. Um, I, I know quite a lot about Poland. They have, uh, have unofficially, they've completely severed their dialogue with the Russian Orthodox uh, since long before the war. So they simply see it as an absolutely lost course. They did try to develop a relationship, the Catholic Church in Poland, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago, but they've given up on that because they simply don't see them as ecumenical partners they can possibly work with in this situation. So it's a fairly sort of gloomy picture. Um, and I think, I mean, on the other hand, people expect, of course, they feel that um, Kirill is very much Putin's man, but also Putin is very much Kirill's man. There's very much a two-way relationship between the two, and there's a coincidence of interest between the Russian state and the Russian uh, yeah, yeah, just to make one point, I think what's it's, it's also important to um, uh, sort of extract from, from Kirill's speeches and from the speeches of other Orthodox leaders, they have no objection to Ukraine and Belarus being independent states. That's fine, provided that they stick to the Russian way or the Ruskimir. So they reflect Russian values. They reflect this togetherness, this the, 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 from one baptismal font and all the rest of it, which they feel has, has been in its proper place over the centuries. So they can be independent states, but provided they remain very much under the sort of the, the thumb of, of Russian orthodoxy. And so there is a coincidence of interest between church and state, and that's important to understand, I think. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. One of the things that's really strike, struck me was a few months ago when, when Russia had begun its kind of conscription programme was that, um, like you might have seen this, Kirill kind of said that, effectively said, if Russian soldiers do end up being sent into to war in Ukraine and they die, their sacrifice will have effectively washed away their sins in kind of service to the motherland. Um, could someone kind of say what's really going on there? Is, is the war becoming a kind of mystical, sacralized, uh, holy war in that sense? Is it not just about the, the church supporting the state power, but actually saying this is a kind of religious war in its own right? Aristotle. Yeah, I mean, I think this isn't the first time, too. I mean, what's, what's really ironic about um, what happens in um, Russian Orthodoxy is that they have this kind of vociferous 
critique against the West, right? I mean, the West, uh, and and then <laughs> you'll you'll see Kirill uh, pick up tropes that um, you know to some extent could be identified as 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 Western in some sense, right? And um, so my colleague George Macopoulos wrote a, a really fantastic piece for the E publication that we. Um, that we manage called the public orthodoxy. And he called it Patriarch Kirill's Crusade. And he compared um, this forgiveness of sins thing to Pope Urban II's um, uh, declaration uh, in 1095 um, uh, for the, uh, for what I think was the first crusade, right? And so it, it, it's just, uh, again, for, for people who know this world, I mean, it's, it's, it's it's tragically uh, ironic. I mean, not all irony is tragic. I mean, it's tragically ironic, and it's also somewhat of a tragic farce um, because they come out very strongly with this anti-Western rhetoric, and yet they seem to rely on, you know, what what again, what could be identified as as Western tropes. Again, I mean, the West has moved on, obviously. So um, so not. I mean, that's not still part of what we would consider sort of. Western Christianity or, or anything like that. I'm just saying that you can locate it, let's say, within Western history. Hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Kirill, um, um, yeah, so I, I just, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to see that, I mean, so, I mean, it, it's, it, there's no basis at all uh, within sort of Orthodox Christian history for this particular kind of rhetoric at all. And yet Kirill seems to just, you know, it seems to just kind of say it in a way that it's almost a matter of fact that it's part of Orthodox history. And, um, and the, the tragic, you know, the, the extension of the tragedy goes to the Orthodox churches um, in Eastern Europe, because, I mean, quite honestly, they haven't uh, really stepped up to criticize. I mean, the Ecumenical Patriarch is probably the only one, uh, probably bishops in Greece, Cyprus, uh, the Patriarch of Alexandria, but otherwise, all the other bishops have been, uh, you know, we don't want to criticize. We hope that there's peace, uh, you know, both sides are in conflict and they're, they're, none of them are willing to kind of step up and, and really criticize Kirill on this. Um, yeah, so I... Nick, I wanted to come to you because you're a bishop, you travel widely, you speak with other churches. How, how do you think this is kind of affecting or even poisoning relationships between churches in Europe? Well, I, I was in Kazakhstan recently um, and heard the Moscow Patriarchate uh, representative with the Pope there as well, basically repeating um, the party line uh, from Moscow. And clearly that makes relationships difficult because you, it's not as if you're engaging with an interlocutor, you know, with someone who's willing to have a conversation. You're told what the answer is. Um, and you just have to accept that and run with it. I mean, I, I actually have a question, which I wonder if particularly Aristotle might address, which is um, partly what we've heard and what we see is, is a notion of exceptionalism, you know, Russian exceptionalism. We see it in the United States. We see it in Britain uh, through the Brexit process. You know, we, somehow we are exceptional. And I just wonder, is there a sense of um, not just Russian exceptionalism, but also orthodox 
Russian Orthodox exceptionalism, you know, over against the rest of the world. And I ought to I ought to have said earlier, I come at this not actually as church expert, but my early career was in um, intelligence work. So it's more politics and I was a Russian, German, French linguist at um, GCHQ in Chile. Is there no, an intelligence to, to Episcopacy pipeline? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> someone once asked me on, um, on the BBC, um, how do you go from being a spy to being a vicar? Uh, is it going from one organisation that does lying, manipulation and subterfuge into one that does it better? And I suggested that was a scurrilous suggestion. <laughs> That's a great question, though. I mean, I mean, does anyone want to come in on that idea of is there such a thing as Russian Orthodox exceptionalism? We've heard of the idea of the Third Rome, and you know, since the fall of kind of Constantinople and the Byzantines, there's there's a sense that Moscow kind of saw itself as the centre of global Orthodoxy. Is that still the case today? This idea of the suffering servant is really, I think, the sort of identification with the suffering servant is really central to Orthodox thought. I, I would I would say that within orthodoxy, the Russians wouldn't dare to say that their version of orthodoxy is exceptional, if that's what you're asking. Um, I, they, they don't go that far. What they want to do is position themselves as more of the, the, the one that really should be the global leader and global kind of representative of orthodoxy rather than the ecumenical patriarch. And the reason why they can maybe do that is not because, I mean, they, they ultimately rank fifth, right, in the hierarchy, but because of the backing of the Russian state, um, they want to be able to position themselves as, as, the, as the Orthodox church that ultimately could project Orthodoxy in the way that it should. And, and um, look, they do this, again, again, through religious soft power means. I mean, the state uses them. Money flows into many of the other Orthodox countries. I mean, the Russian... Russians have promised to help finish St. Saba in Belgrade, which is a decades old church. I think, I think the largest or the second largest in the world and which sits there in Belgrade, basically unadorned on the inside. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say no to Russians coming in and saying, you know what, we'll finish this for you. Um, we'll pour in hundreds of millions of dollars to help finish this for you. And I just, um, so again, the Russians would never say, the Russian church would never say, you know, we're exceptional. We, you know, we're the authentic church more than you guys. Um, but I do think the other churches have, um, it will be a question whether they continue to do so, have definitely uh, seen them as being able to project, um, especially this idea of traditional values. Um, this is where I would disagree with Jonathan. There's a a very good website called Post-Secular Conflicts Project. Um, it's run by Christina Stockel. It's open access articles. And she just um, uh, published a book called The Moral Internationalist. And it really shows the connection between the Russian Orthodox and the American evangelicals, especially on the issue of promoting uh, traditional values. And her claim is that the Russians have succeeded in basically globalizing what's called the culture wars. And there is some, there's a, a massive amount of evidence for that actually. And that's the thing that Putin has actually picked up on. And that's the thing that he uses as, as one of the reasons why he's kind of going into Ukraine. Um, so again, they would never say like, we're exceptional. 
But I think what they are saying is follow us. We'll take the lead. We'll be the global leader. Let's let's leave the ecumenical patriarch to the side. And but now the war, I think the war will complicate that uh, that role uh, for Kirill. Kirill, other than of course the Ukrainian people and I think uh, quite honestly, many of the Russians and Russian soldiers who probably don't even want to fight this war. Um, Kirill is probably one of the biggest losers in this. Um, he lost a tremendous amount of, um, he, 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 he's absolutely lost uh, a flock, a hu huge flock in Ukraine, um, which will no longer ever be under his control. And I think his position as some kind of global leader, both with the American Vegetables and with the other Lux world, is much, much more complicated now. Uh, so, you know, Putin used them, but they're paying a, they're paying a really high cost um, for this kind of uh, privileging that they're receiving, perhaps, within Russia from Putin. I guess for people who are not familiar with the backstory, we should explain that even before the war started, there, were, there was a kind of massive rift in orthodoxy between the Moscow Patriarchate and, and the historic kind of first among equals in, in Constantinople, the, the ecumenical patriarch. And that was all over the status of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, and which had historically become under Moscow, but had been recently kind of granted autonomy by, by the ecumenical patriarch. Do you think this has kind of put the final seal in any hope of a kind of orthodox reconciliation i think this is going to set in stone now a kind of uh division between you know moscow and and the other churches which are aligned with them and the rest of orthodoxy katie i think yeah i think at some level this has because I, I, in terms of the conflict between moscow and constantinople i think this has sort of set those differences in stone and encouraged both sides to sort of set themselves up as different standard bearers within orthodoxy, within this kind of context of global culture war. And that tends, I think, in some ways to cement divisions rather than, um, than heal them, right? When you start to become the standard bearers of these different um, sort of broader ideological currents. And I think we see um, people in ecumenical patriarchate churches and in um, bishops under the ecumenical patriarchate increasingly setting themselves up in that way as a sort of counter um, to what we see coming out of Moscow. So I think those divisions in the immediate um, future are, are much harder and then much harder to overcome because they become further politicized. And just lastly, then we're kind of running out of time, but I, I'm interested in thinking about the future as well. Um, do, do you think that there is any merit in trying to kind of reach Kirill and the Russian Orthodox Church via kind of coming from other churches? I mean, Nick, what are your thoughts on this one? You, you do a lot of it kind of dialogue and interface. Is there any way to cut through that kind of, uh, I don't know, wall of, of this is the answer and we're just in lockstep with Putin? Or do you think that's a bit of a lost cause? I, I think we never know what the back channels are. By, by definition, we don't know what the conversations behind um, the usual channels are um, and who's conducting them. I mean, I know, for example, that there are conversations um, between the Church of England and, um, and Moscow, but, um, you know, again, there's been a change in some of the interlocutors, you know, Metropolitan Hilarion, who was a known quantity to many of us uh, in the West, was 
obviously not quite sharp enough um, for uh, Kirill and Putin, he's been moved. So now there's uh, a new guy in place that no one I've spoken to really knows. So it's hard to have an ongoing conversation with someone that, with whom you have no relationship. Maybe that'll grow. I don't know. I'd be, I mean, Jonathan may have a particular take on who's talking to whom. Um, the question is not who's talking, it's who's listening to whom. Hmm. Jonathan, what, what's your view on where the kind of future goes and, and whether the dialogue can remain open? I, th- I think the prospect of dialogue is, is completely zero at the moment. And I think any Western church that really tries to enter into some sort of fraternal dialogue with the Russian Orthodox while Kirill is still in post will simply compromise itself. I think it's as simple as that. Um, I mean, one can hear lots of sort of unctuous uh, uh, sort of um, soapy words about needing to keep the channels open and the rest of it. But I, I think in these circumstances, this is absolutely unthinkable. Something has to change. Either there has to be a new leadership, Russian Orthodox, which brings about a completely new way of acting as a church. But I think the, the Russian Orthodox um, determination to use the power of the state an aggressive uh, Russian state to impose its own religious hegemony on its neighbours. I think this is absolutely unconscionable. I c- cannot see how one can maintain a dialogue in these circumstances. The, the acting secretary general of the World Council of Churches was in Moscow uh, a week or so ago, and he said quite directly, rather uh, unusually, in the WC communique that Kirill seemed to be in denial of what he'd been saying and how his words were being received. I think in these circumstances, I, I cannot see how one can maintain a dialogue, at least at least for the foreseeable future. Just a last thought, Aristotle. It, do you agree with that? Is it basically until until Kirill is moved on that, that this is this this is this is the way it's going to have to be? Well, no, I think it's actually until Putin has moved on. I mean, he, as long as Putin is in power, the Russian Orthodox Church is under the thumb of the state. So even if Kirill were to go. Um, there would be someone else put in power that ultimately would still mirror sort of the ideology and the, of the state itself. Um, so, and I don't, you know, I don't see this, I don't really know the Russian Orthodox Church very well, but I, I'd be surprised if there's really, given the appointments that were made and over the decades, over the last few decades, um, that there really is uh, an Orthodox bishop, let's say, within Russia that can kind of emerge as someone uh, who would say, you know what, we, we, sorry, we messed up. Um, we were wrong. And I don't, but, you know, um, but perhaps there might be someone, uh, depending on how all this plays out, um, that, that, that might, you know, raise the, you know, um, somehow the banner of reconciliation, uh, but, you know, it, so much damage has been done to the Ukrainian people. I mean, this is, I mean, I, I, it's going to be decades, um, maybe even longer, um, for this to really um, move towards any kind of um, reconciliation to see uh, a different kind of rhetoric really coming out of, out of Moscow. Um, but as long as Putin and a certain kind of Putinism, um, which I think is an accurate word, is in place uh, within Russia, kind of shaping everything. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't see any any hope for any kind of meaningful dialogue. 
Well, that's a gloomy place to finish, but I'm afraid that's probably where we're running out of time. Uh, thanks very much to all of our guests, Aristotle, Katie, Jonathan, Nick. It's been wonderful having your insight and your thoughts and reflections on this uh, troubling but important topic. Uh, thanks for your time and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, I'll speak to you again next week. Bye bye. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget to also subscribe to the podcast on your phone or tablet to ensure that you receive each episode automatically sent to your device week by week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 